Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. Today we're going to follow the Lord's teaching on the Temple Mount and really explore a dark, dark subject in the biblical narrative. It's a dark subject that's actually articulated by God in flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. The title is A Tragic History of God's Chosen People. Jesus outlines this in a parable that is familiar to everyone if you know the Gospels at all. Let me read that for you. Mark chapter 12, the first 12 verses. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it, dug a vat under the wine press, and built a tower, and rented it out to vine growers. And he went on a journey. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. They took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another slave, and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and that one they killed. And so with many others beating some and killing others. He had one more to send, a beloved son. He sent him last of all to these vine growers, growers saying, they will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read the scripture, the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to seize him. And yet, they feared the people. For they understood that he spoke the parable against them. And so... They left him and went away. We're in the final stretch of the study of the Gospel of Mark, having entered with the Lord into Jerusalem during the final week of his life. Under the genius of Mark's quill and the inspiration of the Spirit of God, We come to this 12th chapter, which records a pivotal moment and a critical story or parallel of this final week. This is another one of the the motivations and reasons that fuel the conspiracy to execute Jesus. 
Now remember what we noted last week, beginning with Jesus' confrontation of the Sanhedrin in chapter 11, verses 27 and 33. Mark lays out a catalog of seven compelling, staccato, very fast-moving stories of conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem over the course of these three days of interaction. This miracle worker from Galilee had gained quite a reputation. It was fantastical. It was unparalleled. He had cured all manner of diseases. He had exercised his control over the natural world. And just a few months earlier, just around the corner, two, month, two miles away, he had raised Lazarus from the dead. Now he enters the temple during this Passover week. All of his miracles behind him But it was his authority that most provoked the religious establishment. And so they asked him in the passage we looked at last week, by what authority do you do the things you do and say the things you do? How do you have the authority that should belong to us who gave you the right? Jesus pushes back with an argument about John the Baptist saying, Where did John the Baptist get his authority, from heaven or earth? They reason together and say, well, if we say from heaven, people will say, why didn't we believe John? If we say from earth, they love John, so they'll they'll be frustrated with us. So they say, we don't know. And so Jesus says, if you can't recognize the power and the authority and the work of God in John the Baptist, I'm not going to tell you from which my authority comes comes from. The place from my, where my authority resides. Then he tells them a story which clearly articulates where his authority comes from in this parable. I told you last week that an estimated 100,000 people live in and around Jerusalem. Well, during the week of Passover, it's estimated that that, that crowd could swell to well over 3 million with upwards of 100,000 people crowding into the Temple Mount at one time. And now this Nazarene from the north comes to Jerusalem, Passover week, the busiest week of the year, and he is the talk of the town. They had heard about him. They heard about his miracles. They no doubt heard about Lazarus. There he is. So when he stopped to talk, you can rest assured he had a captive audience. Now, there existed a very complicated and intricate and complete and thorough and well-announced and articulated system of authority on the Temple Mount. These authorities were chief priests, scribes, and elders. They made up a common group of each other called the Sanhedrin, which would have been the liberals and the conservatives. Chief priests and the scribes were the authorities on Scripture, the inner workings of access to God through the Temple Mount. And now comes Jesus, whose words and works were saturated with a divine authority they had never heard ever seen before. No one had done what Jesus had done, and no one could speak as Jesus was speaking. So the challenge of this scene is no surprise. You can imagine this is their week. Matthew tells us they love to walk around during this week with long robes and grandiose titles, wanting the people to basically kiss their ring. Look at me. Look at how impressive I am. And while people were looking at them, Jesus comes on the mount and they run from these men 
to Jesus. Well, you can imagine their disappointment, their frustration with this. And so they began to concoct a scheme to put him in his place. They thought they could expose Jesus as a rookie theologian if they would trap him with their arguments. And we'll see in these subsequent um, uh, conversations he's going to have about paying taxes, about marriage in heaven, that they, they tried every way and every angle possible to trap Jesus and make him look foolish. And every single time he reverses the trap and they're the ones who are shamed. Where did Jesus get his authority? He says, I won't tell you, but I will tell you a story. And if you'll deduce what the story's about, which verse 12 says they did, you will know exactly where I got my authority. Now, this is important. Please listen. Mark is writing to a Gentile audience. That's important. Because we're going to look at the history of Jewish rejection of the prophets and Messiah. So, why is that important for a Gentile like you and most of, uh, most of me? Like me and most of you, let's say it that way. I think I'm thoroughly Gentile. Why is that important? Why would Mark take the time to do this? Because it's important that we understand the connective tissue between the Old Covenant and the New, the Older Testament and the New first part of your Bible, and the last part of your Bible. He uses the space of over a chapter in this gospel to show how and why the Jews rejected Jesus and why they remain to this day under a divine curse until he'll gather them anew in the kingdom. Mark uses these stories then to illustrate the person and glory of Christ's singular authority, fulfill the intent of temple worship in his person and teaching. He, he judged the temple system as God in the flesh. And he shows the Jewish religious system rejected her Messiah, all really summarized in this story, this parable. Now this first story, beginning in verse 27, illustrates the conflict between Jesus' divine authority and the coercive manipulative power of the Jewish authorities. And in short, Jesus uses this parable to expose the planned attempt against his own life. He knows what they are up to and is about to show them that in no uncertain words. So the parable unfolds as an important lesson to the hearers and Mark's readers, that's you and me, knowing the tragic history of God's chosen people gives perspective on God's current dealings with us through the gospel. Even for us as Gentile believers, this Jewish history is critical. From Mark's pen, from Mark's mind, from the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Understanding the messianic rejection of the Jews and their leaders is important to know for historical perspective, but it's also important to know from a personal perspective and not to commit the same errors they did and to avoid them at all costs. So let's look together at this and outline three tragic chapters in the history of God's chosen people. That's what this parable does. It just simply outlines... From the lips of God incarnate, three tragic chapters in the history of God's chosen people. The first is in verses 1 to 5. Israel and her treatment of God's prophets. 
Israel and her treatment of God's prophets. Now, the chapter division between Mark 11 and Mark 12 is unfortunate. The first 12 verses of chapter 12 are a part of the same scene at the end of chapter 11. In fact, this is the way he answers without a specific answer their question of where he got his authority. He's just silenced the members of the Sanhedrin by refusing to answer the question that they should have answered themselves. And then he asks them a question that they could not answer, or maybe worse, would not answer. And the takeaway was that if they could not identify the source of John the Baptist's authority, then they certainly could not be trusted to identify his authority and the source of it. Think about this scene. Jesus has just... Seconds before, openly exposed the spiritual incompetence of the most well-respected leaders in Israel and perhaps in front of thousands, maybe tens of thousands, if it was quiet enough, and I have every reason to believe it would have been, of bystanders. Now, immediately, he goes for the knockout punch as they are staggering, if you want a boxing illustration. D. Edmund Hebert comments, Having silenced the attack upon him by the Jewish leaders, Jesus, with this parable, carried the war into the camp of the enemies, end quote. If you want to see bravery, think about the numbers. Tens of thousands against one. He tells them a story. He tells them a parallel. Now, in Mark's gospel, he doesn't highlight many parables. Remember the, in chapter 4, the parable of the soils. But now he comes back critically important in this situation and highlights or records Jesus' parable against these Jewish leaders. Some parables actually require a lot more challenge and effort to interpret than this one. This parable, however, is hand-fed to us. It's interpreted and applied by Mark himself in chapter, in verse 12. You can actually get a head start on understanding the story by rightly jumping to the end as we begin. Down in verse 12, Mark informs us that the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, understood very clearly that Jesus was in fact speaking to them, about them, and against them. Look at verse 12. They were seeking to seize him. That means for the purpose of murder. And yet they feared the people for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. That's important. If we know that at the end, then as we interpret it flowing through, we understand he's using this parable to speak specifically to, about, and against these leaders. Verse 1 gives us the historical, cultural context of the story. Let's look together. He began to speak to them in parables. Here's the parable. A man planted a vineyard. Now, before we look into this historical uh, setting, I want you to notice the detail. The detail that Jesus goes into describing this scene. A man planted a vineyard, no doubt of grapes, He put a wall around it, ultimate protection. He dug a vat under the wine press 
and built a tower. This was so they could process the, the, uh, the grapes for, for the wine right on the spot. No need to travel. This is an expensive endeavor. This is a detailed endeavor. This has every contingency covered all in one shop. Even built a tower to look out for thieves, marauders who might come and try to attack the vineyard. He gets it all said. He gets all this effort to get this vineyard the way it needs to be. And he rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. Luke 29 says he went on a long journey. He was away for a long time. Lots of detail, lots of effort to get this vineyard set up. It was protected. It was detailed. All of the elements for creating wine right there, one-stop shop. This will illustrate, as we'll see in a moment, God's exacting control and care over taking care of His vineyard, the nation of Israel. This is a direct quotation and an allusion to Isaiah chapter 5. Let me just read that for you. Where the illustration here is God and the vineyard owner... And Israel is the vineyard. God is the owner. Israel is the vineyard. Let me sing for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard, Isaiah says. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug dug it all around, removed its stones, planted it with the choicest vine. Listen to the detail again. He built a tower in the middle of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it. He expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. He's actually indicting the nation in this parable. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in a critical statement. There's nothing more I could have done to protect, to nurture this vineyard. Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it, good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now, let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge. It will be consumed. The protection is going to go away. I will break down its wall. It will become trampled ground. All of the, the, uh, stop, the safe, uh, safety features he put around it were going to be removed. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain and no, and no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord is the host, the vineyard of the Lord of hosts, is the house of Israel. So now we know very clearly Israel and the men of Judah, his delightful plant. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. Verse 7 sets the context for the Lord's words here in Mark 12. The vineyard of the Lord is the house of Israel. So, when we look at this story, when we talk about this vineyard, that's the people who should have been cared for by these shepherds. After establishing now the vineyard as Israel and the owner as God from Isaiah 5, Israel's leaders who are confronted by Jesus now will be represented as wicked tenants, wicked subleasers of this property. Look at the crisis in verse 2. At the harvest time... Grapes are ripe. He sent a slave. 
Now, this is supposedly from a long distance and a long way away to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. It was very common to go uh, get a sample of what was being produced. It was also a way that they actually paid rent back to the owner. These subleasers were supposed to give some of the fruit back to the owner. Understand, he owned the vineyard himself. But the reception of the slave is unjust, unexpected, and unwelcome. Verse 3. These subleasers, they took the slave and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Quite a reception. Two responses they give him. They beat him up and they send him away with nothing. Nothing that he came to request. What he came to request, rather. Word gets back to the owner. And verse 4 tells us, in his kindness, in his grace, he gives them another chance. And he sends a second slave, a second representative. Verse 4, he sent them another slave and they wounded him in the head. This would have been a serious, communicate a serious blow. They didn't just beat him up and leave him in the ditch. They concussed him. They treated him shamefully. Two responses there. They give him a serious wound to the head and they treat him Terribly shaming him, dishonoring him, insulting him. It's not over. Verse 5 accents and accelerates the multiplying of these subsequent representatives. But it gets different in verse 5. Now death happens. He sent another and they killed that one. So with many others, some they beat and some they killed. Third servant is sent. They kill him, deliberate, intentional murder. Then Jesus provides this summary statement that many more servants were sent. Some were beaten, others murdered. Two things stand out here. First, the brutality of these vineyard workers. And secondly, the gracious patience of the owner who kept sending more and more representatives. In fact, he continued to send these representatives with increasingly terrible responses. In the Isaiah passage that Jesus quotes, it's the fruitless vineyard that failed to produce the fruits of righteousness. But here, he changes the accent of the the parable. Here, it's on the wicked tenants who picture the Jewish leaders and the nation itself. What's going on here? This is a direct outline of God sending prophet after prophet after prophet who is misheard, unheard, mistreated, beaten, and some they killed. And God continues to send a prophet and another and another. And they're over and over mistreated. Just read the, the book of Jeremiah, the book of Ezekiel, the book of Isaiah, as we'll see in a few minutes. Likely the one in reference... To, uh, in the book of Hebrews, it was sawn in half. Later, Jesus would say, perhaps the next day, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I've wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Matthew 23, 37. 
back in Galilee, two and a half years plus earlier, in Matthew 5 on the Sermon on the Mount, verse 10, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Your reward in heaven is great. For, listen, in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then that echo in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 37. They were stoned. Speaking of the men of faith, prophets of faith. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. Tempted. Put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. Men of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. So in confronting the assembled Jewish leaders, Jesus first outlines their terrible history of how they had treated other prophets of God in the past. He's saying, you don't have a track record of recognizing men of God. You don't have a track record of treating prophets of God in the honor that God expected you to. Why should I expect that you'll treat me any differently? And remember... The most recent prophet they had treated with derision was Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, that was in reference in the previous conversation. They hated him. They murdered him. He was a part of this first description, this first chapter in the history of God's chosen people that tragically treated the prophets with disdain. Gets worse. Israel and her treatment of God's son. This is what we call proleptic scripture. In other words, Jesus is prophesying. He's about to speak of something that will certainly happen, in this case, in three days. Verse 6 has a trauma to it. He had one more The New American Standard says one more to send. It's really more final than that. He only had one more. There was one last option. A beloved son. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. Literally, he had a son whom he loved. Remember what was heard when Jesus was baptized in Mark 1.11? You, a voice came out of the heavens and said, You are my beloved son, same phrase, in you I am well pleased. Then again at the transfiguration with Peter, James, and John, a cloud formed in Mark 9.7, overshadowing them. A voice came out of the cloud and said, This is my beloved son, listen to him. Tell this story in the fourth grade Sunday school class downstairs and every one of the students will get 100% that they understand this is speaking of Christ, the Son of God Himself. 
After sending the prophets over and over, one after one, again and again, seeing them mistreated, seeing them beaten, seeing them wounded, seeing them lethally treated, killed, God, the landowner, now sends his own beloved son with the thought that surely they would listen to him. What's the meaning here? After God sent prophet after prophet after prophet, if he sent his only begotten son into the world, surely they would listen to the son. It's impossible for me to read this and not hear John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. They see the sun come. And verse 7 tells us what they do. Those vine growers said to one another, now they have a record of conspiracy, which is exactly what was happening among these Jewish leaders on the Temple Mount. You can bet morning, noon, and night. This is the heir. Let us kill him. Look at this. And the inheritance will be ours. That implies that they perhaps thought the the owner was dead. They're ready for the inheritance. You get the inheritance when the the guarantor dies. They said, well, if we kill him, we can have what uh, what was his as ours. So, verse 8, they took him. Imagine the eye contact of the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings, God in flesh, looking at these men, looking at them in the eyes and saying, they took him and they killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Alan Cole comments, It was not through their failure to recognize the son that they killed him. They all recognized who this was. They conspired about it. That would have been pardonable. They just thought he was another slave, in other words. It was, as in the parable, precisely because they recognized him for who he was. Then he goes on to say, We reject the claims of Christ not because we misunderstand them, but because we understand them only too well, end quote. I think most people who reject Christ, when really confronted with the evidence of who he is, what he did, what he said, how he said what he said, most people who reject Christ don't reject out of disbelief, they reject out of dislike. They don't want to grant authority over, of, of their lives, over their lives to anyone but themselves. Verse 12 informs us that these leaders knew Jesus was speaking about them. He implies they they probably understood that he was, if not the Messiah, a likely candidate, but they didn't like the politics he was selling, which was love and serve God and bypass them. Matthew says, he adds, that someone in the crowd said to Jesus, he comments after they said this, this would probably not have been one of the, the, the Pharisees or the scribes of the elders, they said, he will bring those wretches out to an end. 
And then he'll rent the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper season. Do you hear the Jewish judgment and the offer of the gospel to the Gentiles in that statement? Just answering the question of the story, remember, he says, well, he'll bring those wretches to an end. He will rent out then the, vi- the vineyard to other vine growers and will, who will, will indeed pay proceeds at the proper time. Luke records the horror of the situation and the conclusion in Luke 20, 16. He will come and destroy these vine growers, will give the vineyard to others. When they heard it, they said, may it never be. Since we will discover that the members of the Sanhedrins knew what Jesus was talking about in verse 12. I don't think they were the ones who were offering up the interpretation as they went along. Remember, Jesus has been predicting his death for months. He had done it just a few days before this on the walk up the hill toward Jerusalem. Now he outlines the reality of those who would conspire to have him murder to those who would conspire to have him murdered. This is the thou art the man moment in their lives. First tragic history in the, of God's chosen people is they, they rejected the prophets. Second, they reject the son. There's a third tragic history in the history of God's chosen people. God and his treatment of Israel's rejection. How will God respond to those prophets who were killed, mistreated? How will he respond to, to prophet after prophet after prophet who was unheard? How will he respond to sending his own son and they kill him? Jesus asks, they kill these representatives, they mistreat them, they insult them, they now kill the son and throw him out of the vineyard, and he asks in verse 9, what will the owner of the vineyard do? Said another way, what will God do to the rejection of the prophets and the rejection of his son? This is the question of the story. It implies a self-evident conclusion which Jesus now supplies. He will come and destroy the vine growers and give the vineyard to others. There is a heavy, heavy load of theology in that verse. A heavy load. There's theology, eschatology, ecclesiology here. This is shorthand for the kingdom through the gospel being given as a stewardship from the people of Israel and especially the, the temple leaders to saved Gentiles that we're going to see unfold by Luke's pen in the book of Acts. The Jews who should have been those stewards of the good news of the gospel had the good news as a stewardship ripped from them because they didn't believe it. And then he turned to the Gentiles. I I love the history of Paul, Paul's biography in the book of Acts. 
he goes into city after city after city, being a Jew of Jews, Philippians chapter 3 tells us. And he, he, where is the first? God says, you're going to be a missionary to the Gentiles. He goes, okay, God. And then every single city, where does he go first? The synagogue. And how do they treat him? They beat him up at Derby and Lystra. They treated him so badly that they took him out, left him in a ditch as dead. That's quite a beating. He will come and destroy the vine growers. I believe this is the, the Jewish leaders he was talking to. And will give the vineyard to others. Think about this. The stewardship of access to God that they so pri- proudly prize themselves to possess. You can't get to God without us and our formal gowns and our, our, our smarts and our, our, our theology and our position. He is going to take access to God from them and give it to common men and women the not many mighty, the not many noble, and change the world through ordinary non-Jewish believers. Now, a little footnote. Some of the Jews believed. You have the disciples, save Judas, who, who believed. So it wasn't that no Jews believed, but the significance here is that the, the ones who should have believed didn't. Maybe we should, should even add wouldn't. Romans 11, by the way, outlines this reality through Paul's depiction of the olive tree, which I think is the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, Just read this later if you you have opportunity. The, The natural branch is cut off. That would be Israel. An unnatural branch is Gentiles is grafted in. And then in the end, he will come back and graft the natural branch back in afterwards. Then verse 10, an indicting... Word. Listen, friends, if, if the Lord Jesus ever asks you this question, I hope you have a good answer. Have you not even read the Scripture? Stop right there. There was an expectation that Jesus had that these Jewish leaders, these theologians, the scribes, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the elders, the representatives of all the, the tribes of Israel who would have been there on that Passover week who comprised the Sanhedrin, this was the senate of all theological understanding And he says, you don't get it? Have you not read the scripture? And now he quotes scripture to them. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and is marvelous in our eyes. The meaning of the parable is becoming more obvious. The owner is God. The son is Jesus. The vineyard keepers are these Jewish leaders. They didn't know the scriptures and how to steward the gospel that was standing before them. But the real explanation comes in verses 10 and 11. He unveils this this reality of the rejected stone being the chief cornerstone, the one they killed to be the Messiah, by quoting Psalm 118, verses 22 22 to 23. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is a marvelous, it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, the irony of that is that Jesus is using the passage in a way that that would not have been lost on his hearers. Because if you know Psalm 118, if you've read it, Psalm 118 actually describes the destruction of Gentile antagonists and enemies who've come against Israel. 
But Jesus uses the psalm to depict the Jewish leaders who've come against the Messiah. He turns upside down their understanding of that. How can he do that? How can he reapply that? Because he wrote that. He is the God of the scriptures. He's the very author. The very stone rejected by the Sanhedrin will become the cornerstone of God's access to him paved through the cross. Stone around which every other stone is arranged. There's a lot of debate. I've been to Israel a few times and I've heard all the debates that a cornerstone is either the, the corner of the building and everything is in line with it or it's the highest corner of the arch on which all of the pressure lands. Can I just say, take either. They, they both work. He's the most important stone. Jesus reveals that he, he, he is the true Israel in Psalm 118, rejected by the chief priests, scribes, elders, and followers. They then were worse than the Gentile antagonists. Of Psalm 118. By the way, the first generation of believers understood very well Jesus to be the cornerstone. Ephesians 2.20, having built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. Romans 9, verses 30 to 33, what shall we say then, that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith? But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were through works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. He who believes in him will not be disappointed. That's a quotation from Isaiah 8, 14, which Peter picks up. This precious value then is for those who believe, but those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected became the very cornerstone, and that a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumbled because they were, are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. Jesus is saying, the one you reject, the son, the stone, which is me, is actually going to be the cornerstone of all God's activity, the road to God, the access to God alone. What Jesus has taught in the parable was no mystery to them. They understood it well. It was clearly understood by these, these, the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, members of the Sanhedrin, that he was... Indicting them. Verse 12. They were seeking to seize him. This is not just talking about incarceration. This is talking about seizing him and killing him. But they feared the people. Because they understood that he was speaking the parable against them, and so they left him and went away. This is the sobriety of the passage, the, the sobering last phrase. They left the Lord. They left the Savior. They left the cornerstone. They understood who he was and walked away. 
Instead of being afraid for their souls, they were afraid of the opinions of people, the text says. They feared the people. They clearly understood Jesus to be publicly speaking about them and against them and to them. They had just been humiliated by the discussion of John the Baptist. Now they are humiliated and publicly judged by Jesus. They were embarrassed. They were incensed. They were infuriated. They were enraged. But what a lesson this is. A little footnote. These are three chapters in, tragic chapters in Israel's history. Is that the final chapter in Israel's history? I don't think so. Listen very carefully. We spent weeks on this when we were studying Romans. In Romans 11, verse 23, they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, this is Jews, continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. If they, if they stop unbelieving, if they believe, they will be grafted in into the Abrahamic covenant, which is that olive tree he's describing there. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until... The fullness of the Gentiles has come in. This hardening of the, of, the gen, of, the, of the Israel mind about the Messiah is not eternal and it's not permanent. And so all Israel will be saved. Just as is written, Deliver, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove the ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of, of God are irrever, uh, irrevocable. <laughs> Just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience. Exactly what Jesus said. He will take the stewardship away from you, and give it to others. So these also now have been disobedient because of the mercy shown uh, to you that they may also be shown mercy. He's not finished with them. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. And if you just look at this and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's the Abrahamic promise, the Abrahamic covenant to bless all the peoples through the Messiah. And he, he, uh, there's a branch that grows out of that, this, the Jewish nation that should have been attached. They were disobedient. He cuts them off. Then he adds an unnatural branch, which he says are Gentile believers. And he grafts that into the Abrahamic covenant. Praise God, that's you and me. And then at the end, after that, he takes the natural branch, a natural branch that's on the ground, and grafts that back into the real Abrahamic covenant. If you say, that's just way, way deep. Paul responds, oh, the depth of the riches of both the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, unfathomable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? Who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? 
For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. God's not finished with Israel. As a political nation, absolutely. But one day there will be one grand nation, the people of God. Jews and Gentiles grafted into the same Abrahamic covenant together because of faith in Christ. And that will be the final physical stage of the kingdom. And we will talk about that in Mark chapter 13. Okay, I need to ask you something. I want you to stop it. I want you to stop doing what we've all been doing for the last half hour. We easily look at this and we sit with Jesus on Jesus' side and say, those rascal Jewish leaders, how dare them. Had I been there, I would have been one of the believers. Remember, all 12 of the disciples, one will deny him and the other 11 will run like scared little boys in just a few hours. Do you understand and know the identity and authority of Jesus? Let's put all that history that was negative on the Jews back in the pen of the writer of the Hebrews. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, many portions and many ways... And these last days has spoken to us in his son. That's his final language, his final word, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So let's, let's tuck a few implications into our hearts. Ready? First of all, learn from their tragic rejection. Let's learn from their tragic rejection. They rejected God's spokesman, the prophets. They rejected God's word. They rejected ultimately God's son, and it's easier to do that in your own heart than you might imagine. Oh, you may not outwardly reject that, but is there a way that we ignore him and ignore the scriptures? We ignore the prophets? We ignore the Older Testament? Secondly, if you recognize any degree of rejection of God's son don't do what they did at the end they they immediately left him when we recognize our true state before the son of God as they did instead of moving away we should move toward and if this is a day where you have seen that your heart is predisposed against the Lord Jesus and what he has done on the cross for you what he's done in his resurrection to offer you peace and tranquility and forgiveness of sins now and in eternity. Please run toward, not away from him. I also look at that question that Jesus asked, just a third takeaway for me. And God expects that his word will be read and understood. Have you not read He expected that they would have read, they would have interpreted, they would have understood. As God himself stands before you and says, have you read? Have you not read? Is this the read your Bible more sermon? Of course it is. He expects 
that those who claim to know him have read and understood what he said. Oh, it's easy to judge these men, see them as scoundrels, see them as rejectors, see them as judging the prophets and judging the son. Is it as easy to ignore the prophets? Is it as easy to forget the son? Be very careful to throw rocks that could easily be hurled at you.